Blog Talk Radio. Hi everyone, this is Camille from sunny California, and you're listening to the Coffee Chat with Camille show, which is a podcast series that interviews various guests about real-life topics for people who love to learn. Hi everyone, this is your host Camille. We have a great episode on Coffee Chat with me, Camille. The title is Genuine Love in the Animal Kingdom with Rebecca Coffee. Rebecca Coffee is a science journalist with broad national recognition. She contributes five features a month to Forbes.com, where she addresses evolution, science, health, and behavior. She's written regularly for Scientific American and Discover Magazines, PsychologyToday.com, and Vermont Public Radio, where she was a frequent on-air contributor for almost a decade. And she also contributes science and form op-eds to newspapers like the New York Daily News, the Chicago Tribune, the Seattle Times, and to many radio and internet outlets. Coffee is also a humorous McSweeney's internet tendency. I think it's a defense, uh, defense illustration, the rumpus, <laughs> a host of lit websites, and a book of literary humor, and a novelist, the highly phrased serial comic histor- hysterical, and Anna Freud's story. Kirkus Reviews has likened coffee to journalist and humorist Mary Roach. Okay, and so we're going to go ahead and get into our magnificent interview with Rebecca Coffee. Hi. Hi, Camille. How are you? Hi. I'm wonderful. Welcome, welcome. So happy to Thank have you here. <laughs> Um, okay, we're going to go ahead and we're going to get into the interview. Thank you again for being our guest. Humans and animals share some nonverbal come-hither gestures and expressions. What are they and how do they serve the survivor of species? All right. So, as Charles Darwin said, we are all, and by all, I mean plants and animals, and animals include humans, biologically programmed on a level that is not inside of our awareness to send our gametes into the next generation. Gametes means reproductive material. So we all have mating gestures. Um, Humans and primates share quite a few of them. For example, there is a way that young women nod their heads down and put a hand back and bat their eyes, look back up and bat their eyes. Well, flirtatious young women are not the only ones to do that. Primates do that. 
But not only primates, mud turtles do that, albatross do that. There seems to be a biological fundamental signal that says, I'm kind of interested in you. Great, that's great. Now, Do animals, of, oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Well, one of my favorite questions is whether animals can feel love because they can certainly feel an urge to mate. Charles Darwin thought they could. He thought that even insects, crickets, communicate love by rubbing their feet together and making noise. Most scientists these days would call that hogwash. They <laughs> would just say, you know, he, he was an early scientist. He wasn't quite careful on that matter. Um, but not every scientist would disagree. Uh, Jane Goodall has said things, reminiscent of that. So has Franz de Waal. So, there is an open question of whether animal, animals can feel love, romantic love. Now, I don't think it's a stretch to imagine that mothers feel maternal love and some fathers as well. Okay. Thank you very much for that. And do animals know mother love? And if they do, does it make a difference in their ability to survive and procreate? Well, it actually does make a difference. Um, um, researchers have found that males who had been orphaned after weaning but before age 12, when they were adults, they sired considerably fewer children. Um, orphaned males in, in primate groups are unable to maintain their alpha status for as long as males were raised by their mothers. Um, on average, they uh, have their first offspring about three years later. And orphaned males, these are chimps actually, orphaned males fathered about half as many offspring per mating, and their offspring were less likely to survive. Oh. Okay. And then um, male brown spiders seem to prefer to die after having sex, and male Malabar spiders not only irreversibly damage both of their sex, sex organs, which is their you know, their equivalents, I can't say it here, during sex, they then make uh, themselves readily available as meals to their mates. How did these spiders' preferences serve their evolutionary interest? Well, let's talk about um, the topic of sperm competition. Sperm is a word that we can actually say, though it doesn't make it to email filters if you put it in a subject. <laughs> um, uh, so Darwin said that there are two kinds of uh, drivers of evolution. One is natural selection. Whatever can adapt better 
to changing environmental pressures survives those changes. And the genes of that organism tend to dominate its species gene pool. That's natural selection. Natural selection happens for animals and some plants that reproduce sexually. How do you get chosen to be a mate? So peacocks, male peacocks, sprout beautiful feathers, stags sprout antlers, um, bowerbirds build bowers. But there's an aspect to sexual selection that Darwin didn't know about because it happens on the microbiological level, and he wasn't a microbiologist. What he never realized was that it's not just getting the possibility to mate that helps a male transfer gametes into the next generation. It's making sure that its sperm, his sperm, are the ones to fertilize her eggs because not all females are monogamous in any given mating system. So the Malabar spider has an interesting way to um, help that happen. First, some of the microbiological ways are that swim, uh, sperm swim faster or they're stronger or they're bigger. So there's, you know, there's something built in. But with the Malabar spider, it, the male's sex organs come out of its head. And it approaches the male, uh, the female, on the web and inserts one sex organ into one of her receptacles. But she, so you would think the matter is done, right? Well, the problem is she has two receptacles. Fortunately, he has two sex organs. So he, he inserts his sex organ into his receptacle, her receptacle, but then he severs it. He leaves it in there, and when it's in there, it continues to ejaculate. He steps back, ready to defend her, to fight away any other males that come. If another male would come, comes, you would think he would just gather his energy and fight like crazy. But instead, he does a very bizarre thing. He devours his other sex On the spot, he eats them. So now... He has no sex organs, and you would think he would be very weak from losing to appendages. Well, scientists check that out. What is the survival benefit of eating your sex organs when you need to be defending your female? And they did a staged fight between what they called eunuchs. Spiders with no sex organs left, and spiders with one sex organ. And they also stage battles between spiders with no sex organs left. And, and um, virgin male spiders. Consistent. 
eunuchs fought longer and harder. Now, the, so the name of their, talk, their paper was Eunuchs Are Better Fighters. So, so to answer your question about why would you allow yourself to be eaten, why do male brown spiders allow themselves to be eaten? Well, why do Malabars allow, allow themselves to be eaten? So you're not just fertilizing one egg, you're fertilizing an egg stack. Maybe dozens, maybe hundreds, depending on the species. You allow yourself to be eaten, possibly, because you become food to help the female nourish the eggs that you just fertilized. So it's mm-hmm. all about sending your gametes, gametes into the next generation. Okay, that's excellent, excellent. And then from his work studying evolution, at the time of his marriage, Charles Darwin knew more about the dangers of crossbreeding than almost any person alive. Yet his own marriage may have not been his wisest life choice, genetically speaking. It put his children in grave danger. How and why? Oh, okay. How and why then did he marry? Okay, so how did he, why and why did he marry? And then what was great about his marriage anyway? So Charles Darwin was a 19th century uh, scientist. He had just spent five years on, on a boat traveling all around, mostly South America, gathering specimens. But he had, um, aside from occasional visits to court and possibly brothels, he had not been in the company of a woman for five years. He hated his nose. He was an aristocrat. He had plenty of money. He hated his nose. So here this man, young man with few social skills and a nose he hated arrives back in England and he needs to talk to people and he needs to, you know, get to know people. And he starts visiting his cousin, Emma. Now, they, you know, they would have fireside chats pretty regularly. And the problem is back then, you couldn't have regular chats with a young woman without proposing. Now, he knew about the dangers of crossbreeding because he'd been doing experiments with plants. And he had also noticed that, by and large, animals avoid mating with the close relatives. In primate communities, either the young man or the young woman, upon puberty, leave the group and go out and find another group to live with. Sometimes both do. He he could tell it was really important not to marry or mate with a close family member. But there he was having regular chats with Emma. And Emma was 30. That was pretty late back in 1839. Right, she was becoming an old maid, even though she was a reasonably attractive 
girl, she was intelligent, she was an excellent pianist, having studied with um, Chopin. And um, so she sat down one day and drew up a list, one, two lists. One was called Mary, and one was called Not Mary. And they was trying to decide what to do. And the, on the Mary list, the benefits were female chit-chat. He liked that. Um, on the not Mary list, he would have to put up with visits from relatives. He, would, he didn't want to do that. He would probably have people walk every day. He didn't want to do that. But somehow, and, and the lists were about equally long, he worked up his nerve and he asked Emma to marry him. And Emma, shocked with all get out, agreed. She was 30. She needed to do something. In fact, it was an extraordinarily successful marriage. They loved each other dearly. And she had to nurse him through a lot of sickness because when he was traveling around South America, he got a tick form disease and he was desperately ill for much of the rest of his life. But they had 10 children and three of them died young. Now, back in the mid-1800s, in aristocratic families, plenty of money. Their mutual grandfather was Josiah Wedgwood, who had designed all of that beautifully painted china and porcelain that was all the rage throughout Europe. They had plenty of money. Even so, even though they could afford doctors, losing three young children out of a group of ten may have been pretty average. I don't know. The records aren't really there. Nobody was doing census data like that. But Charles and Emma blamed themselves. And for the rest of their lives, they thought of the remaining seven children as frail. And they kicked themselves for having gotten married in the first place. So, as I said, it was an extraordinarily successful marriage. He got all the female chit-chat he wanted. He got, he got the walks every day that he feared, but they did walk every day. Charles was the worst at spelling of almost any man on the face of the earth at the time. And Emma was his editor. Um, Emma was a very devout Anglican, and at the time... The Anglican Church had the biblical view of creation, that God called it all into being in roughly the same condition that we see it now. So Darwin's ideas about evolution were, were heretical, and some people wonder if that was a problem for her, but in fact it didn't seem to be a problem for her. She was of his mind, scientifically and emotionally. Wow, that's a great, great uh, story or part of history. And then why is monogamy among animals so rare? And is it also rare among humans? Monogamy among animals is rare, probably because 
when a species is at all endangered by lack of food or a community, not even a species necessarily, but a community, by lack of food or by an increase in predators, um, it becomes smaller. And so you are, if you are a monogamous species, you are likely to be permanently mated to a close relative, which puts all of your children at risk and hastens the collapse of the community. Um, so the benefit there to polygamy is that at least some of your children will be healthy. Now, in um, human communities, we claim, most of us, certainly in the Western world, claim to be largely monogamous or serially monogamous. Um, the fact of the matter is, we cheat. First of all, about 85% of human societies have allowed uh, polygamy. That's a form of polygamy in which the woman has to stay with it, but the men have more than one spouse. That's very expensive for the man. He's got to support more than one family. So only rich men are generally able to have more than one um, spouse and family. And it's not a very good solution for society, according to crime data gathered in the United Kingdom, um, unmarried men between the ages of 24 and 35 are about three times more likely than married ones to murder another man. In general, they wreak more violence and are also more prone to suicide. So monogamy has a peacekeeping function in human society. But, as I said, among animals, it's not so great. Um, according to 30 years of survey data of 41 animal species in West Africa, it's the second strongest factor driving species into extinction. Okay, thank you so very, very much. This has been a magnificent science episode, I call it, or science. Uh, <laughs> it's just uh, it, wonderful. Thank you so much, Mr. Bear Coffee. And um, I'm going to go ahead and say bye for now. Can I give a little plug for my book? It's called um, Oh, Beyond, yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I'm it's sorry. Called yes. Beyond Primates. Beyond Primates. Uh, new essays on Darwin and evolution, and it's available. It's probably not in all bookstores, but it's certainly available on Amazon.com. Beyond Primates. Beyond Primates. Okay, yeah. I didn't see it in the notes. Okay, all right. Thank you so much. Okay, and then thank I will you. put it in the description. Yes, okay. thank you so much. Excellent. Bye, bye, Rebecca. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Okay, everyone, that was the magnificent, world-renowned science journalist, evolutionary psychologist, and humorist, and novelist, Rebecca Coffey. 
And then I will um, look up your book and then put it in our uh, show description before I transfer this episode over to um, to my website. So you can find a copy of the episode today with Miss Rebecca Coffee at coffeechatwithcamille.com. Okay, and then it should also be able to be listened to on any streaming platform, okay? So where they stream music on there. And the number one streaming is Apple. Apple, Apple, Apple. Second is Spotify, okay? At any rate, thank you all so much for listening to this magnificent episode on Genuine Love in the Animal Kingdom with Rebecca Coffey. It was a very impactful, I think, and oh boy, just just filled with gems episode, okay? I'm sure my mom's going to love it since she actually uh, worked at Caltech, California Institute of Technology, for 22 years, okay? So she was a, a, a member of the science community big time. All right, bye for now, everyone.